Bible, this is our second week of At the Movie series, and we'll be pairing the 1999 sleeper sci-fi hit The Matrix with two of Paul's very obscure and unknown companions. So last week, discussion was a cry to fulfill our mission that God has given to each of us. But this week's message is kind of at the other end of the spectrum. Whereas last week was about starting strong, today's message is about finishing strong. And I want to tackle a difficult subject relevant to our collective uh, social experience over the last year and a half. There's been a step change in how we interact and engage, not just within society, but also within the church. So I want to, we want to finish strong. It's something we need to address today, and we're going to do that. But before I get started, and I, I don't want you to be shy here, okay, because I need to know, how many of you have actually seen the movie The Matrix? Go ahead, raise your hand. Let me see. Okay, that's, okay, not too bad, not, much more than the first service, but a little bit concerned because I, I don't know if, you know, it's such a, a mind-bending, crazy movie. Let me spend at least a few minutes explaining ab- about it. So in 1999, my wife and I were, were just married. We were living in a small apartment in Aspen. We didn't have any children yet. And since we, you know, we, we had some life left in us back then, uh, we were looking for something to do on a Friday night, and I heard about this really cool new movie called The Matrix. Now, for you younger folks, when you wanted to see a movie back then, you had to either drive to the movie theater, or you had to rent what was called a video cassette tape, or a DVD. Now, they didn't have true streaming back then. But Verizon had just started this new service where you could rent a movie through your TV. Thought that'd be pretty cool, so I wanted to try it out. So although it wasn't her genre of movie, Kim relented and let me go ahead and rent The Matrix, and I started the movie. Now, The Matrix initially tracks kind of to a tried and true formula for most sci-fi movies. You see, by day, the main character, uh, um, Tom Anderson, who is one of a hundred nondescript computer programmers just kind of tapping away at this massive corporation. But at night, he was Neo, one of the world's foremost computer hackers, carefully staying one one step ahead of the authorities. Yet, there's there's this feeling that something just wasn't right. It was like he was missing something about life, but he couldn't quite put his finger on it. And true to form in most movies, Mr. Anderson was quickly arrested by the evil government and was interrogated by the evil agent, Smith. Now, now here's where it gets a little weird, okay? So just bear with me. Now, after refusing to talk to the authorities, his mouth literally started to kind of seal shut and then it disappeared. And then they, they brought up his, like, insect, living, animal, machine, organism thing, and they put it in his body. At that moment, he woke up in a cold sweat, and whoo, whoo, thank goodness it was only a dream. Or was it? <laughs> well, Neo receives a clandestine phone call from the infamous Morpheus, whose small team of freedom fighters save him from the government bug and whisk him away to a secret location where Neo is forced to make a pivotal decision. Morpheus gives Neo the opportunity to finally find out what he's been missing all these years. Now, of course, Morpheus won't explain it in a very simple, straightforward, plain, plain way. That would be too, too easy and obvious and not as much fun. So instead, he gives him a choice. And I'll go ahead and quote the famous scene from this movie. Morpheus says, <clears throat> here we go, <clears throat> this is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends You wake up in your bed, and you believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. And at 20 minutes in the movie, Neo takes the red pill, 
And the next thing you know, he kind of like explodes out of this mechanical pod in slimy goo. There are hoses and wires coming all out all over his body. He looks out and sees hundreds of millions of such pods spanning out in the distant horizon and realizes that the entire human race is unknowingly enslaved by a sentient machine. Yes, every human on the planet actually exists in a giant global computer simulation. In other words, plainly, the machines have duped humanity into believing a virtual lie. Well, I literally, literally paused the movie, jumped off the couch, and was like, oh my gosh, this is the most amazing, incredible thing I've ever seen. I can't believe this movie. I was literally giddy. I had this maniacal grin on my face. And I look back at Kim, and no joke, she says, I have no idea what's going on. So let me break it down. The core theme of The Matrix is that most of humanity are slaves to an evil lie. And this very small team of people who know the truth about the deplorable condition of humanity are willing to sacrifice everything they have, even their lives, for the cause of freedom. So Morpheus, Neo, and their team are fiercely dedicated to the cause and to each other. There's no room for anything but 100% commitment. So no matter how big the sacrifice, how difficult the journey, how long it's going to take, they are in it together. They will fight this evil machine to the bitter end, knowing that even if they don't succeed, they are clearing a path for future generations to succeed. And again, just like last week, the writers of the Matrix corrupt and steal a very real and serious spiritual problem facing us and turn into a snappy script to sell as many movie tickets as they possibly can. Only we know it's not a movie. We know that Satan is a liar. He has deceived the world, and people really are going to die and end up in hell along with him if we don't do something. It's up to the church of Christ to wake people up from the deception of the devil that everything's great. You're fine. You don't need God. We are to persevere and sacrifice, and we all must finish strong. But this is also a long fight, and we must do battle together, unified in our goal. See, our task is not a short sprint. It is a marathon that God's given us with an unknown finish line. You know, this racing analogy is actually very, very common. Paul uses it multiple times in the New Testament, especially in Acts chapter 20, verse 24. He says this, However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. See, Paul tells us that us Christians, we're in for a lifetime of struggle. We must persevere together and see this thing through. And, and typical Paul fashion, he doesn't just tell us this, he actually lives it out with his life. And you can see that in the, in the scripture. If you're willing to look at the details. You see, we're quick to study these and consider these gigantic heroes of the New Testament, right? Peter, Paul, Mark, Luke, right? These giants of faith, and rightfully so. But let's not forget, there are hundreds and thousands of real Christians dedicating their lives full-time to preaching Jesus back then, and we'll never know who they are, well, except through us, their legacy, now, a few of them are actually sprinkled in Scripture here and there. We might find them in a footnote in a book or, you know, sometimes at the closing end of, you know, a passage in the Bible. And they're real people doing real work, running the race together with Paul and those other giants 
in the New Testament. You know, after the last year and a half of extreme restrictions and distancing and social chaos, I feel called to speak against an emerging threat to the unity and perseverance of the Christian community, both locally but really globally. So I want to, this morning, contrast the reaction of two obscure names in the New Testament uh, with, and the race that they were set before them and, and, and difficulty, because I believe that their example, these two little known men, their names are Epaphras and Demas, will urge each of us to finish strong for the cause of Christ. So if you'd like, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Philemon. It's right before Hebrews, a little tiny book. You might miss it if you, if you turn too fast. And it is the year 62 AD. And Paul has been, this is the first time he's been imprisoned in Rome. And he's taking advantage of his own uh, social lockdown, so to speak, to instruct and encourage his friends and their churches. So the book of Philemon is one of Paul's personal letters to a wealthy Christian living in Colossae, whose slave Onesimus had escaped and fled, and in the process he'd become a Christian. And Paul exhorts Philemon to take Onesimus back, but, but not as property, but as a brother in Christ. It's a truly revolutionary, high standard of love and compassion and charity the world has never seen before. I'd love to go into that, but that's actually not the purpose of today's focus. Instead, I want you to look at the end, the closing part of the letter, right? We often skip over such closing texts. They're sometimes, you know, not very interesting. They don't contain doctrine or details. Or maybe sometimes you just want to avoid the wacky names, right? Well, today, uh, let's go ahead and let's track these wacky names, okay? So the point is Paul is not alone. He's introducing his team. This is Paul's crew, the team taking care of him during the lockdown and helping him accomplish his ministry. They're all committed to running the race together. So in verses 23 and 24, Paul gives a shout-out to, and I quote, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. Now retain those names in your memory for a second and go ahead and turn to the book of Colossians. Okay? Now about the same time, all right, Paul's still in prison. He's writing now a second letter, this time to the church that is in Colossae, and that's the name Colossians of the book. Go ahead and turn to chapter 1, and if you want to start reading, go ahead. But we're going to pick it up quickly as Paul gets going in the letter to verses 6 through 8. So I'm going to read it for you. It says, here's what Paul says. The gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has, has been doing among you since the days you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Now, did you catch that? It really floored me this time when I read it. You see, I just assumed that Paul was writing to a church he'd started in Colossae, just like he's done with a lot of the New Testament books he's written to the churches that he started. But I was wrong. We find out that the Christian church in Colossae actually began, it didn't start with Paul, it began with the evangelistic work of Epaphras, this little-known guy. But wait, there's more. So go ahead and turn to the end in chapter 4, if you like. Where, where Paul provides a much longer sort of closing greeting section to his letter than he did in Philemon. Well, we find out a lot of things here. So what do we find out? Well, Tychicus and Onesimus, they're going to hand deliver this letter of Colossians to, uh, and the letter of Philemon that he's written. They're going to take it from Paul's hand in Rome and travel and go to Colossae and deliver it to both the Colossian church and to Philemon. 
We also find out that Aristarchus, Justice, and the gospel writer of Mark, who we spoke about last week, are the Jews with Paul in Rome. And we also learn there's some Gentiles with him as well there too. They're followers of Christ. And that's where we go to chapter 4, verses 12 through 14. He says, Epaphras, who's one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He's always wrestling in, you, uh, wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Our dear friend Luke the doctor and Demas send greetings. So Epaphras is praying and working earnestly for multiple churches. We now know that Epaphras didn't just you know, raise up the church in Colossae. He's also had a hand in other churches in Hierapolis and Laodicea. Man, this Epaphras guy, he is kicking butt and taking names for the Lord. He's working tirelessly for the kingdom. One of the greatest evangelists of all time, Paul, is giving Epaphras some good props, and rightfully so. So I want you to look. Paul is basically assembling his Christian dream team. With him, he's got two New Testament writers, Mark and Luke. He's got Epaphras, who, even though he's little known, he's obviously a powerhouse of, of Christian apologists. He's got Aristarchus, he's got Demas, Onesimus, Tychicus, and Justice, and they're just rounding out this very powerful crew. And when I read this, on one hand, you know, I was, I would just, I was thinking I was killed to be there to see this, right? To see their unified spirit, their selflessness, their, their zeal for ministry, their communal sense of purpose. You know, and, I, and I, I, could just, I could just see them. I could just bet how contagious it was. You know, there are so many people coming to the Lord that it's no wonder the Jews and Romans thought that these, these followers of Christ was this, was this crazy cult. But on the other hand, I, I don't need to go back and, and see what happened back then. I get to live it every day with all of you. Impact. You are my crazy cult of Jesus followers. And I love to be in ministry with you, fighting with you, fighting the good fight and running this race together. But we can never forget something. Just because God has guaranteed our victory, it doesn't mean that the struggle isn't real. Whether it was Paul's team back then or Impact's team right here, don't underestimate the challenge we have ahead of us. Remember, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon, and we must finish strong together. You know, Satan and the powers of this world are desperately fighting back against his church this church and, and, and our team. They're throwing everything they've got at us, including the kitchen sink. Satan knows his defeat is inevitable, but that doesn't mean he's going to give up. Evil never sleeps. The devil prowls around like a lion, just waiting for the perfect moment to pounce on his prey. Just the right moment when his prey is at its weakest. And that's exactly what Satan is trying to do right now. You know, evil attacks at a weak point when, when times get tough. And it is portrayed so perfectly in the movie The Matrix. That's why I paired it with the message this, this week. It, it really fits so good with the story of Epaphras and Demas. You see, at this point in the movie, Morpheus and Neo are taking their own dream team of fighters against the evil ruling powers of this world, trying to defeat it as well. They've got Cypher, they've got Trinity, they've got Tank, Dozer. Man, the crew seems dedicated to the cause. And just like with Paul's team, and just like with our team, while the fight has been arduous and difficult and, 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 and painful, they're winning. 
Neil and company seem to be turning the tide against the matrix and the sentient computers. But at this point in the movie, it's where things take a sudden, unexpected turn. So you're about to watch a scene between Cypher, one of Morpheus's and Neo's crew, and the evil agent Smith, who's actually none other than the sentient computer himself disguised as a human. That didn't make sense, don't worry about it. Just, just watch the clip. Do we have a deal, Mr. Reagan? You know, I know this steak doesn't exist. I know that when I put it in my mouth, the Matrix is telling my brain that it is juicy and delicious. After nine years, you know what I realize? Ignorance is bliss. Then we have a deal. I don't want to remember nothing. Nothing. You understand? And I want to be rich. You know, someone important. Like an actor. Whatever you want. Mr. Reagan. Let that scene sink in for a minute. If you reflect on this clip of the movie from a Christian contest text, it's extremely disturbing. It's a shocking portrayal of our dark and sinful human nature and the risk that comes from not staying vigilant. This scene is as old as time itself. Satan masquerades as an angel of light, promising to fill all the desires of our corrupt hearts. All he needs us to do is give in. You know, Satan tries to tell us, look, just give up the hard life, the sacrificing, the toiling, the tears. That end goal of salvation, it's, it's, it's just not worth the lifetime of fighting. It'd be better if you just go back to the life you lived before. It'd be like you never swallowed that little red pill. And what's more, is that there are two very disturbing aspects to this scene. First, Cypher knows it's a lie. He knows it's an illusion. He knows he is giving in to the lies of the devil. But he just doesn't care anymore. He, Cypher trades in a hard-fought, eternal future victory for a temporary, fleeting pleasure now that's not even real. And second, he also forsakes his entire team. Cypher is willing to walk away and leave his team high and dry, all for a lousy stake. And unfortunately, that's exactly what happened to Paul. After being released from prison, Paul and his team spend several years continuing their missionary journeys and really taking the, the gospel message to the entire Roman Empire. But after Emperor Nero um, falsely blames the Christians for a huge fire that rips through Rome in 64 AD, Paul is again arrested and imprisoned in Rome. Only this time, he and everyone knows he's going to be executed, along with thousands of other Christians in the persecution. But Paul was not deterred. With time running out, he feverishly works to squeeze an entire new lifetime of, of, of evangelism into a very short year or so before he's about to be executed. 
There's no doubt, no doubt, that Paul is going to finish strong. But unfortunately, that can't be said for all of his team. They're not all willing to finish strong. And so in Paul's very last letter in the New Testament, just before his death, we read about what happens in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. He tells Timothy, do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved the world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. And get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. Demas has deserted Paul. He's forsaken the team. Now, we don't know exactly what happened, but I think I could probably fill in the blanks. After all, it is the oldest deception in the book. You know, I, I could hear Demas thinking now, I'm just sacrificing so much of my time, my money, my, myself. I didn't think I'd be signing up for this high of a price. I really didn't think it'd be this difficult. And that's exactly when the devil walks in and tells you a lie. He times it perfectly. He knows just which button of yours to push and when to push it. You see, when you're at the bottom of the barrel and you don't think you have an ounce more left to give to Jesus, Satan shows up. Have any of these lies of his ever entered your mind in the past or maybe even recently? You know, before you knew Christ, didn't you have a lot more fun? I, I don't recall there being so much conflict with your friends and family before you accepted Christ, do you? Aren't you tired of feeling obligated to live up to these just ridiculously high expectations of morality and compassion and love and all that stuff? What if you live to be like 85 or 90 years old? Like, are you really going to put another 30, 40, 50, 60 years into this? I mean, how much longer do you have to, to keep this up? Is following Jesus really worth the struggle, the difficulty, the stress? Oh, just give up now. Just, just go back to the lie you lived before. It'll be all right. Trust me. You'll love the steak. You know, I don't think that this is an anomaly or a far-off problem. This conflict of faith, whether it be brought on by, you know, by, by crisis or doubt or the attacks of Satan, it's happening around us constantly. It always has. Now, obviously, I don't know the numbers, but in a congregation of our size, how many people at this moment are struggling with this temptation? I, I bet dozens of, of people, if not more, right here, right now. And to me, generally, it's kind of like three responses to this, to, this, to this temptation. Response number one is to acknowledge it. You know, you, you reach out to your family, your friends, your growth group, uh, a staff member here, an elder. You're seeking help and trying not to fall back into the world. You know, if that's you, can I encourage you to please stay with it? Don't give up. Don't give in. Thank you for connecting to your Christian family and getting help. Now, response number two is kind of like response number one. You're struggling just as much, but You'll walk in here, you'll be out in the world, and you've got a rosy smile, you've got a warm hug, great attitude. Everybody thinks, hey, their walk with God is, is just great. But it's not. Now, if that's you, can I just encourage you to speak up and say something to somebody you trust? That's what we're here for. You are not in this fight alone. Impact Christian Church 
is your dream team. Let us help you, support you, cry with you, answer questions. Let us love you. You don't have to go alone. Don't allow Satan to get a further foothold in your life. But response number three, that, that's the one I'm really concerned about. You see, you've already pushed back from the church. You're attending less on Sundays. You've kind of been skipping some growth groups, and you're making excuses why, well, I can't really be a part of that ministry or that activity right now. I'm just, I'm just a little busy. And you've, you're heading the way of Demas already. You're kind of trying to back out gracefully, right, so that nobody notices you're about to quit the team. Now, if that is you, please, can I encourage you, it's not too late to turn around and seek Jesus again. You cannot walk far enough away that Jesus won't still be right there beside you with open arms. And so are we here at Impact. Don't go the way of Demas. Don't go after the stake. Trust me, it is not worth it. And finally, what if you aren't struggling with this lie right now? What if you're actually in the process of finishing strong and in a strong place with your faith? Well, then seek out someone who isn't. Open your heart and your life to a fellow brother and sister in Christ who's going through a difficult time right now. You know, earlier when I said that we are here to help you, you know, you are here to help. So as we end our time together this morning, I want to close with Paul's final thoughts in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Remember, 2 Timothy is Paul's final letter before his death. In chapter 4, verses 2 through 8, in that section, Paul gives us literally the absolute final, the final instruction before being led off to his death. This is the last thing he's going to say to the church and to us. So listen carefully to his words. We'll read it together. Preach the word. Be ready to serve God in good times and bad. Correct people's mistakes. Warn them. But encourage them with words of hope. Be very patient as you do these things. Teach them carefully. But I want you to keep your head about you no matter what happens. Don't give up when times are hard. Work to spread the good news. Do everything God has given you to do. I am already being poured out like a drink offering. The time when I will leave is near. I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there's a crown waiting for me. It is given to those who are right with God. The Lord who judges fairly will give it to me on the day he returns. He will not give it to uh, only me. He will also give it to all those who are longing for him to return. So this is my final appeal. Dig deep. Recommit. Finish strong. Please don't give up. And as I close out with prayer, I want to make one special plea for any of you who are struggling today. If you're here in this auditorium right now, after our final song, please head back to the Engage Impact booth. Elders and others will be back there to be available to pray for you, to support you, to help you in any way we can. And listen, don't worry about who sees you go back there. Don't worry about what's next on your agenda today. If you're being called back there by the Spirit, go back there. And if you're watching virtually online today, the same thing is true. We have a host there for you. We, you know, you can engage with us virtually. Please don't close that browser and walk away. You don't have to fight this on your own. We are here to help you finish strong. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this morning. And thank you that we can be here all with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, we are so blessed to have this great family. 
And Lord, like, like I, I mentioned, we're, we're all struggling. We're all having difficulties. This life is not easy. And sometimes when we look forward, we think, oh, man, there's so much more to go. Lord, help us to remember and convict ourselves to finish strong. Not that we're going to be perfect. Not that we got all figured out. But Lord, help us not go the way of Demas. Help us to not give in, give up. Don't let Satan get a foothold with us. We know you've got the power to do that. And we ask for that today, Lord. We're so grateful for this church, for this time together, and for each other. We love you and thank you for your son, Jesus. In his name, amen. Amen.